0: We started this podcast as a simple commitment between Casper and me. Once a week, we would sit in a room and treat Harry Potter as sacred, even if no one showed up. Now, we have 70,000 listeners we never could have imagined. We also now have Maggie, who makes sure that all of our local groups feel supported. We have Megan, who makes sure that we behave with integrity in the world. We have Chelsea, who produces the women of Harry Potter. And we have Ariana, who makes sure that every episode, every live show, everything we put out into the world is done to the highest possible standard. We make sure that we pay all of them a living wage. We are trying to be the change we want to see in the world. We are trying to only use fair trade merchandise products to give health care to all of our employees and paid time off. We are trying to save in order to plant a tree for every flight that we take. And we cannot be the company that every company should be without your support. With 70,000 listeners and 1,300 supporters on Patreon, that means that 2% of you support us on Patreon, and we are so grateful for your support, but we want to make it 3% of our listeners who support us on Patreon, which would mean 2,100 supporters. For $1 a month, you get an extra few minutes of bloopers. That's $1 a month for the feeling of being in the top 3% of our listeners. That level of success would even make Hermione happy. So join us, be part of the top 3%. Join Casper and me in that room that gets more and more filled the more of you show up. We are so grateful that you are part of this community. I'd have sat in that room with Casper alone gladly, but I love having you here.
1: Chapter 35, Veritaserum. Harry felt himself slam flat into the ground. His face was pressed into grass. The smell of it filled his nostrils. He had closed his eyes while the portkey transported him, and he kept them closed now. He did not move. I'm Casper Tekyle.
0: And I'm Vanessa Zoltan.
1: And this is Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. Vanessa, we read this week's chapter through the theme of betrayal, and I hope you have a story for us.
0: I do. So in the seventh grade, we had to take the practice SATs, the PSATs. And I went to this like very competitive school. And then we got our scores one day at school and everybody was obviously talking about how they did. And this one girl in our class was telling everybody that she got a 1590. And this is the seventh grade, and this test is, like, geared toward 11th graders. And just for those of you who don't know, 1,600 is a perfect score on this test, and 1,590, almost nobody, nobody, nobody gets that when you're, the test is age-appropriate at 16, 17. So, like, a 12-year-old getting that score, it is bonkers. Right. So I did not believe her. I just thought that that was ridiculous. And so I sort of, without even thinking about it, because I'm a mean, cynical person, turned to my friend Erin and was like, no, she didn't. There's just like no way that she did that well. Well, so that night Erin called me, and Erin was like a little bit more popular than I was, and so I was like excited that she was calling me, but we were friends. It was like within the realm of normalcy that she called. So I sat down on my parents' bed, I feel like everybody who's been through middle school in the world knows where this is going. She said, remind me what you said about so-and-so and and their score. And she did not need to ask me twice. I was like ready with my theory. I was like, oh, she's lying. She definitely didn't get a 1590. And of course, then comes in the voice of the three-way call. The other girl was like, well, I did, and it's true. And I can show you my score tomorrow. And God, that feeling of betrayal First of all, I obviously felt so embarrassed. I felt like I was caught doing something terrible. I mean, I was gossiping, and that's bad. And I was accusing someone of lying based on, like, very little information. All bad.
1: Also, you were, like, 12.
0: (laughs) Yes. But I wasn't just embarrassed in front of the girl who may or may not have gotten a 1590. But the betrayal I felt by Aaron, no joke, it ruined our friendship. It is the worst feeling in the world to me, a feeling like I was stupid. And I was like, oh, I should have guessed because it was weird that she didn't say like, hi, how are you? And then she just came right out the gate and asked this one very pointed question. I should have seen it coming. And so I feel like really when we're betrayed, it immediately becomes this bigger thing because it's if I can't trust you, who can I trust? And if I can't trust the people I thought I could trust, can I trust my own instincts? And the world just goes topsy-turvy. And also, three-way calling is terrible.
1: Oh, Vanessa, that just sounds like the worst experience. I mean, and also because it's one of those small things that you do that you know you shouldn't, and then you get exposed for it, and it's just, ugh, the humiliation. And also, setting you up to fail in that way, it's using a relationship. I think that's why betrayal is so painful, because it's about feeling that you're being used in someone else's plan in some way, that you're just a means to an end for someone else's purpose.
0: Yeah, the girl who, quote unquote, got the 1590 was more popular than I was. And so Erin was trading up. She was betraying me in order to get points with this other girl. So, Casper, last week, I promised everybody that I would videotape you during a 30-second recap.
1: And I'll be videoing you. Neither of us remembered and put the correct outfits that we had planned on (laughs) but we are wearing clothes so that's a win
0: (laughs) okay i'm recording
1: okay here we go
0: on your mark get set go
1: so in this chapter, Harry is like, "Oh, I'm dying!" "Oh, no, I'm not!" But he's dead. Um, and then um, Dumbledore's like, "What happened?" Her. And then uh, Fudge is like, "Oh my God, Cedric is dead!" Ah, there's a wailing. And then um, Dumbledore's like, "Stay here. You must stay here." And then this voice like pulls Harry away. Well, not a voice, but a body. And, and like, and it's Moody. And then we hear all sorts of backstory about Moody. Um, and he's like, "I'm not Moody. I'm actually Buddy Crouch Junior." And all of these things happened. And then Moody doesn't realize. But there's three figures coming out behind him. And then there's a Stupefy, and Dumbledore, McGonagall, and Snape. Okay. <laughs> well, that was okay, but I feel like you can do better.
0: Obviously.
1: <laughs> all right. I'm going to record you, too. Here we go, Vanessa. Three, two, one, go.
0: <laughs> Harry won't let go of Cedric's body, and um, there are all these whispers, and girls start crying because apparently girls cry more than boys, and um, Moody pulls Harry away, and they go into Moody's office, and Moody is like, I'm Barty Crouch, and then they... Um, They make Barty Crouch drink Veritaserum and he's like Polyjuice Potion and there's Moody down in the thing. And Winky comes in and is crying because it's the first time that she finds out that Barty Crouch Sr. is dead. And um, Snape and McGonagall both go off to like complete different tasks and Dumbledore starts his meaning making thing.
1: I found it totally heartbreaking to see Winky in this scene. Like everything makes sense that didn't make sense before.
0: And like... Nobody is remembering that she's standing there, like, getting this news for the first time. Right. Someone should bless her for that. So, Casper, nothing is going to be as bad as my seventh grade betrayal. (laughs) But where should we start
1: in this chapter? It really struck me that betrayal is all over this chapter, and in two ways often, which I found really fascinating. One of them, and really centrally, I think, is the relationship between Barty Crouch Jr. and Voldemort we see this unraveling of a story as Barty starts to tell Harry about what's really going on. And then with the Veritas serum, we get the whole truth. And the first betrayal that I saw between the two was when he's really in control of the situation and says, I'm going to kill you, thinking that it would be like some sort of heroic act. But we know that would be the greatest offense that he could give Voldemort. So there's a sense of betrayal there. And then, of course, he's revealing information about Voldemort, which is super sensitive, not only with the Veritas Serum, but even before that, when he's having his egotistical moment of like, you never knew it was me, but I was there all along. And what I love about that is that the things that trap us or that trip us up are often the things of which we're most proud, that our gifts can actually betray us when they're not kept in balance. And I thought that really stood out with Barty Crouch Jr., that his ego and his ambition And even his loyalty in the end undo him.
0: Right. So what you're proposing is that if he had, like, used this opportunity of the chaos to run away and go find Voldemort.
1: Or even take Harry beyond the boundaries of Hogwarts and disapparate. Or call Voldemort, who's now in full power, to come to the boundaries of Hogwarts and I've got Harry. You know, there's so many ways in which he could have fulfilled a broader mission but he at this moment where he's just overwhelmed by this ecstasy of knowing that Voldemort is back in power that now he knows that he is going to be lauded and celebrated as the only true loyal death eater he gets kind of drunk on his own egotism and it ends up betraying him
0: yeah, that's so interesting. Also, I love that because you didn't just solve Barty Crouch Jr. for me. You solved this moment in like every Bond film.
1: Right, when the baddie is like, no, ha ha ha, let me tell you. So much is about wanting someone to know that you're special. And I mean, I even feel that this is true of Voldemort. You know, when he calls all the Death Eaters to him in the previous chapter, there's a sense that it's not real until it's seen by other people. And I think Buddy Crouch Jr., you know, that's just amplified by 10 because he's had to live this secretive life first in Azkaban, then in hiding at home, and then hiding out in the world as Moody. He's never been able to be himself and be recognized for his skill, however evil it is. Absolutely.
0: Absolutely. So I'm just reminded about the moments where like my joy has betrayed me, where you like have one too many glasses of champagne and you end (laughs) up dancing like sort of an idiot and someone catches you on tape or teases you about it. It's hard, right? Because it's often when you let your guard down. And to some extent, that's a really lovely thing to do. And so if you live your life in fear of betrayal, then you never can have real intimacy or vulnerability.
1: That's so true.
0: So I'm really interested in this idea of, like, the baddies, as you call them, wanting to be recognized. Hegel had this idea, which is often called recognition theory. Mm. And he was talking about times in which they're like rich people and servants for the rich people and how the wealthy were entirely dependent on the peasants because it wasn't just about the labor that the peasants created on behalf of the wealthy but it was also about the fact that the peasants are who saw them as wealthy and if they only hung around other wealthy people there was no recognition of their superiority Mm. and so that is a form of power that the peasants have and hegel's idea was that even when you are standing on someone else's throat Mm they can subvert power by looking away from you as you do it.
1: That's one of the fundamental kind of strategic bases of nonviolence. When you think about just non-participation, that's building exactly on this idea. So like, I wonder what would have happened if Harry had covered his ears and refused to listen. Harry's in a state of total bewilderment. So this is not a critique of Harry, but there is a subtle power that's at play there. And... So you've introduced Hegel. Let me introduce Foucault because I think his idea around the desire for confession is something that's really helpful in this situation. Foucault talks about how the kind of moral standards of our culture get embedded into our bodies. And so that when we then do something that breaks those moral codes, we want to expel that sinfulness nearly in language. By making it verbal and sharing it with someone else, we literally get rid of some of the weight that we carry of breaking those moral boundaries. So with Body Crouch Jr., he's literally confessing, not necessarily in his language, his crimes, but he's certainly wanting to share his actions, unburden himself in some way. And I noticed that I do that too. Like when I've done something where I'm conscious that it wasn't really exactly the right thing, I want to share it with someone, partly to get a sense of, like, do they agree with me that it wasn't quite the right thing to do? But also, I just feel better.
0: I love the idea of Barty Crudge Jr. confessing to Harry, even if he doesn't know that that's what he's doing. Because I would imagine at this point that Barty Crudge Jr. has an affection for Harry, he has taught him for a year and he has like helped him survive for a year. He's
1: been a good student.
0: I'm just thinking about like my friend who has a farm, if you're fattening up a lamb for the slaughter by the time it's time to slaughter, it's hard. I can imagine the desire to tell the animal of like I've tried to give you a really good life. I have to kill you, but that's sort of the way of things. And so it's possible that he's sort of trying to convince Harry, like, I have to. Look at all of the ways that I've suffered, and now I have to kill you.
1: Well, and I'm wondering if there's a reason why he keeps talking to Harry. I think it might have to do with the fact that he wants his body to transition before he kills Harry, so that he's only really willing to betray Harry when he's in his body-crouched junior body, not not in his moody body, as it were.
0: The other moment I see with betrayal is actually with Harry. He keeps holding on to Cedric, and then he keeps repeating, right, like, he wanted me to bring him back. And I feel like that behavior is the kind of behavior that I do when I feel like I've betrayed someone. Mm. I want to keep repeating my good intentions. As our listeners know, I recently had surgery, and right around the time I had surgery, within 24 hours, my friend's mother died. Mm -hmm. And I just couldn't physically be there for her in the way that I wanted to be there for her. I was too sick, and I, I was terrified of pushing myself. And so I just kept repeating to her, saying, like, I'm doing everything I could because I felt so strongly that I was failing her. And I feel like Harry feels like he's betrayed Cedric by letting him die. And he's like, but I did everything I could. I brought him back. I brought him back. Those moments where you feel like you're betraying someone and you feel like you couldn't help it. And you want to prove it. I guess that's it. You want to prove that you couldn't help it.
1: Yeah. And by holding on to Cedric's body, I'm also just thinking about that as long as he's holding Cedric... And he closes his eyes, you know, his, his face lands in the grass. He's no longer in danger with Voldemort, but he's also not quite here yet. And he doesn't have to face all of these people who are shouting and stressing and judging him. But as soon as he lets go of Cedric, he has to face other people's judgment, which will look like accusing him of betraying Cedric in some way, which is not at all what Harry's intentions were, nor really in any way the reality of what happened.
0: I so remember that. When my friend died in high school, I went home from school and took a nap, even though I wasn't tired. I didn't want to tell my parents that she died because I, right, I didn't want it to be real. And so like if I could sleep, it wasn't true for longer. Yeah. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by Quip. Harry Potter and the Sacred Text listeners, I don't want to scare you, but three members of the Not Sorry Productions team have recently lost a tooth. Now, none of this was because of bad brushing. It was because of accidents that happened. But I am concerned about people who love Harry Potter and their teeth. Quips Electric Toothbrush can help you in your routine of keeping your teeth healthy and sparkling clean. ...and why it's perfect for getting back into a routine after the summer. Quip starts at just $25, and if you go to getquip.com slash Harry Potter right now... ...you can get your first refill pack for free. That's your first refill pack for free at G-E-T-Q-U-I-P dot com slash Harry Potter. My brother and sister-in-law have a fig tree, and it makes me sad because I live 3,000 miles away from the fig tree... And I love figs. I think they are like proof of a higher being. Now, I resent them less because due to Fleur's amazing Hanami scent, I get to smell like the fig tree. They make stunning, non-toxic perfumes and they list all of their ingredients online. You get a good scent made with clean ingredients. And the sample process is just good old fun. Go to Fleur.com slash Harry Potter today to check out our curated sample set and get 20% off of your first custom Fleur sample set. That's P-H-L-U-R dot com slash Harry Potter to get your first three Fleur fragrance samples at 20% off. Fleur.com slash Harry Potter.
1: Vanessa, as you know, my highlight of the theme conversation is always when the actual word that we've chosen as the theme shows up in the text. In this chapter, the word betrayed shows up as Barty Crouch is telling us about what's happened. The text tells us, Karkaroff fled tonight when he felt the dark mark burn upon his arm. He betrayed too many faithful supporters of the Dark Lord to wish to meet him, but I doubt he'll get far. So what do we make of that?
0: What's interesting to me about this is that Barty Crouch Jr., is assuming that that's why he runs. Mm. But if that was really why Karkarov was running, why wouldn't he just turn to Dumbledore?
1: I think he falls between two poles, just like Wormtail did, where he doesn't want to go to one place, in this case Voldemort, but doesn't feel truly safe in the other. I think the friction that we've seen between the three schools, just in the context of the Triwizard Tournament, reveals that there is still a huge amount of enmity and a suspicion between Beaubaton, Dumstrang, and Hogwarts so that Hogwarts can never truly feel safe for Karkaroff. But there's something more than that. I feel like he doesn't trust himself.
0: And I feel like once you have betrayed something, you become less trusting because you know that people are capable of doing 180s. We just saw Karkarov a couple of chapters ago turn people in, and he's like, well, I turn people in. So everybody, when they're in a tough moment, just turns everybody else in. Right, And so he feels like he has to go it alone and that there's no other option.
1: Yeah. I mean, this is so interesting, I think, Because betrayal is always relational, and there's a sense that if we're on our own, then we can never be betrayed. There's a self-protection mechanism in here. But if you only choose the solitary path, you can't get there in the end either. So it's—I mean, you're damned if you do, and you're damned if you don't, but at least you'll have friends along the way.
0: I think that maybe the lesson is that even after you've betrayed, it's worth it to try to reach out an extending hand, Mm. right? If Karkaroff had asked Dumbledore, Dumbledore would have taken him in and Dumbledore would not have betrayed him. When we're in moments of self-loathing, it's like, well, why would anybody even be my friend? I'm a person who cheats. I'm a person who doesn't stick to my diet. I'm a person who any number of things. Those are the exact moments where you should actually reach out to someone because they're probably going to prove to you that you are still lovable or worthy of care Right. Like, I wish Karkaroff would have reached out to Dumbledore. Strategically, he could have been a really good asset to the right cause.
1: Yeah. And in this whole conversation, I'm thinking of Wormtail, too. The way that in book three that he engages these old friends in terms of Sirius and Lupin. And obviously, they're not in a place where they feel able to forgive him. But when we leave people no choice of not having anywhere to go, I think that's when we radicalize them and and we make them desperate even Barty Crouch Sr.'s approach of how to handle his son, to put him under the Imperious curse, it's not to let him out of the house. I just feel like there was no way that plan was going to work long term. Isolating and locking him up in a new prison, of course he was going to make a run for it at some point.
0: I want to talk about this line. Decent people are so easy to manipulate.
1: <sighs> that struck me too. Because like, who is a decent person and who is not a decent person? Because by saying that there's decent people, we're also saying that there's bad people. And one of the fundamental assumptions that we've learned from these books, if not from our lives, is that we are all both.
0: Yeah. Marty Couch Jr. in this moment is talking about Cedric. And he's saying, of course, Cedric told Mm -hmm. you about the second task, Mm -hmm. because decent people are so easy to manipulate. But we know that the only reason that Cedric did that for Harry is because Harry did that for Cedric. And we know that the only reason Harry did that for Cedric is because he felt helped by Hagrid and he happened to see Cedric. These complex ecosystems are what make us decent or what make us indecent anyway. There was this fascinating study done that was actually quite inhumane during World War II with conscientious objectors. The U.S. government did an experiment where they starved and mistreated a lot of conscientious objectors in order to figure out how to deal with returned prisoners of war when American soldiers would get returned to them from POW camps and what to do with victims from the concentration camps. And what they learned quickly was that when people were starving and scared, they were much less decent to Mm. one another and that it only took about three, four days in order for people to start jockeying for food and not sharing, et cetera. And so I just think that circumstances can put us in positions in which we betray ourselves and in which future versions of ourselves will have to look back and be like, that is not who I want to be, but I was in distress.
1: You know, all of this is making me understand Winky again. Winky's being asked to participate in all of these secrets and all of these Curses and countercurses within a family. So, of course, like, she's going to break down as soon as she's out of that environment. That whole environment has kind of drowned her in this familial betrayal from one to the other. And this chapter being the final one.
0: Well, she's been put into a position where she can't, because two people who she loves are betraying each other, there's no way for her to be loyal to both of them. So, Casper, mm. this week we're doing Havruta, and so I am going to ask you a question that is nearly impossible to answer, and then I will try to answer it. So, when Bertie Crouch Jr. is telling Harry all of the things he did, one of the things that he says that he did was put magical water plants of the Mediterranean right under Harry's nose because he assumed that Harry was going to be asking everybody mm. for help. He says... Longbottom would have told you in an instant, but you didn't. You have a streak of pride and independence that might have ruined it all. So my question is, Neville and Harry have so much in common, and they live in the same room. Why aren't they friends? And the only thing that I can answer is, like, not really an answer that I like Harry for, which is that... You know, Hermione is the smartest witch of her age, and Ron has the Weasleys, and, like, Neville has nothing to really offer Harry. Neville's just sort of this dorky kid and, like, isn't cool enough for Harry. It doesn't surprise me that he's not close to Dean and Seamus. Like they share a room and they're perfectly sweet to one another, but they don't seem to have anything in common. Whereas Neville and Harry both lost their parents to the Dark Wizard, they both have this shared prophecy. They have these shared memories of like Neville standing up to Harry, which Harry really respects. They seem to sit together in all of their classes or near each other, which is why Hermione's always able to help Neville. Hermione and Neville seem to be friends. Ginny and Neville are friends. So So, like, they have adjacent friends to one another.
1: Yeah. You know, the way I think about it is that sometimes we're the harshest critics of people who remind us of ourselves. And there's just, like, this allergic reaction to the bits that maybe we haven't healed from in ourselves, or that we're just embarrassed about ourselves When we see that in someone else, there's just an allergic reaction against it. You know, you told the story about the kind of middle school phone conversation at the beginning of this episode. And I do think so much of... This is about playground politics. You know, I think the kids who who were the cool kids who never talked to me or, you know, not, not even like were aggressively mean, but were just excluded me in some way. As we all got older and it definitely after we finished high school and and are now, you know, in our 30s, those kind of things melt away because there's no longer – the danger of being dragged down the totem pole in some way. And I think so much of this is about Harry wanting to protect his very volatile social status. He has all of this cachet of being the the champion. But remember the first couple of weeks after he was chosen as a champion, people were walking around with Potter Stinks badges and there was this huge animosity against him. And so I think... Harry is very judicious about who he is allied to at this stage in the books. As he matures, and in particular with his friendship with Luna, I think we're going to see that shift. And I think we're going to see him embrace his own loner self a little bit more and his weird, creative, maybe more vulnerable side, so that when we come to book seven, he sees the transformation that's happened in himself in Neville and just has this overwhelming respect for him.
0: Yeah. I mean, he even gives Neville the final horcrux right. task later. It's just so sad to me because exactly that point that you're talking about when everybody's wearing those badges. If he had turned to Neville, Neville would have said, I believe you. Yeah. And if he just was even curious enough about Neville to like look at the books on his side table, he would be like, oh, plants i should read that book right when he's in his like desperate search for books um or
1: even not looked in his books but actually asked neville hey neville this is the problem i have can you help me solve it it's such an invitation for all of us to not undermine the wisdom that is embodied in the people around us like even those that we might most easily dismiss
0: the other thing is that in the very first book, one of the first moments between Harry and Neville is when Neville's being bullied by Draco, and Draco is stolen the remember all from Neville, and Harry, like, comes in and protects Neville, and I wonder if that creates, like, a power imbalance between the two of them, because Harry is sort of his protector, and in order to be friends with someone, you have to see them as equal And so I guess the other thing is trying to figure out how you can start seeing yourself as equal to someone.
1: Well, and it's going to happen once Harry sees Neville's strengths, especially in herbology. Like once Harry sees Neville in his gifts in some way, and it's actually only once someone else tells him about Neville's gifts that he sees that, then he's able to think of him as an equal. I really am captivated by that idea. I think that's very smart. Let's hear from this week's voicemail. It's from Amanda Holly.
2: Hi, Casper and Vanessa. So I'm a little behind, and I just listened to the pod on Chapter 14, The Unforgivable Curses Through the Theme of Transformation. This episode spoke to my soul, to the point where I was almost tearing up at work. It got me thinking a lot about how transformations aren't always our choices. So last month I was diagnosed with rheumatoid arthritis, and I knew for years that something was severely wrong with me, I was in pain all the time, and some days it was so bad that I could hardly walk, but I never went to a doctor for it, and I never even told anybody about it. For over 10 years, I lived like that, so it wasn't really a shock to me when my rheumatologist told me that I had RA, but what was a shock to me was that it was absolutely devastating to be diagnosed with a chronic illness. To me, I was always healthy and fit and Suddenly, I was told, well, actually, you are those things, but you're also somebody with an autoimmune disease, and you'll have that forever, and it's probably just going to keep getting worse. So, I was forced into transforming. Suddenly, my life included daily injections and medications, and, you know, I had to start thinking that I'm always going to have to combat this progressive, corrosive disease. So, I was I was listening to this episode... And you guys were discussing the theme. I couldn't help but think about this journey that I've been on. And I want to give a shout out to anybody who's been forced into any kind of mental or physical transformation. Because it's hard. And I also want to provide a positive thought to them to hold on to. And it's one that I at least consciously try to make an attempt to hold on to. So just because you're forced into a transformation, it doesn't mean that you're forced to handle it a certain way. I have found the strengthening part of this transformation to actually be the beautiful things I get to take with me. The things that I still find are true even after I've gone through the transformation. My friendships, my relationship, and my family, who have all been just so incredibly supportive and reminded me to be strong in moments where I'm not. They reminded me that even though this transformation was forced on me, I can take the best parts of my life and myself with me. I'm a warrior. And even though I might have low moments through this process, I won't let them transform me for the worst. And as Casper said, there is beauty in the wound.
0: Thank you so much, Amanda. I think most transformations are against our will or at least without our express consent. It's from one day to the next that you go from being someone with two parents to being someone with one parent or... Having friends who are healthy and having friends with a diagnosis, these things happen all around us all the time. And I think you just spoke beautifully about how difficult that process is. I appreciate you shining a light on how difficult that is.
1: Mm -hmm. Thanks, Amanda. Vanessa, it's time for us to bless someone from the pages of this chapter. And who are you blessing this week?
0: As I said earlier, I'm going to bless Winky. I want to bless her for... The fact that everybody keeps forgetting she's in the room Mm -hmm. and they aren't thinking about how traumatic this information or this moment is for her. They have brought her into the room, instrumentalizing her, and then they are ignoring her clear emotional distress. And so... I would like to bless all of the children who I know listen to this podcast because one of the things I remember most about childhood is feeling invisible at certain moments. And I think that that's just endemic to being literally shorter than everybody else, but just, you know, one of the problems of being young. And so a blessing to all the children who listen to this podcast. We love you and try our best to see you and a Blessing to you in those moments when you feel invisible.
1: Hmm.
0: Casper, who would you like to bless?
1: I'm going to bless Dumbledore. Dumbledore is feeling so stupid in this moment. It all clicks into place for him when the supposed Moody takes Harry away from the place where he's instructed him to stay. But, you know, he's been there for a year. And for someone who's supposed to be wise and enormously insightful and powerful and able to control this whole intricate system or at least keep tabs on it and and keep people safe I just feel like Dumbledore must feel really embarrassed and feel guilty and so I guess this blessing is for anyone who feels like they've really made a mess of things like that they have omitted something really important or that they have made a big mistake which we all do from time to time and I hope that you know as Dumbledore does we can learn from it and that we can step forward And put everything behind the people who have suffered because of it and try and make amends, which I see Dumbledore doing. You know, the whole of book five, he's the one who believes Harry and he's the one who stands by him.
0: You've been listening to Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, where you'll be able to see our videos of our 30-second recaps. Leave us a review on iTunes in order to give Casper a sense of self and send us a voicemail.
1: Next week, we'll read Chapter 36, The Parting of the Ways Through the Theme of Disillusionment. This episode is produced by the incredible Ariana Nettleman, the incomparable Vanessa Zoltan, and the truly excellent Casper Turkile. Our music is by Ivan Paisau and Nick Boll, and we're part of the Panoply Network. You can find ours and other great shows on panoply.fm.
0: Thanks to Amanda Holy for this week's voicemail, Rebecca and Charlie Ledley, Julia Argy, and as always, Stephanie Paulsell. We will talk to you next week.
1: Bye, everyone. This is Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. Is that what I say? <laughs> I was like, do you, and you're listening to Harry Potter? I couldn't remember. I,
0: I, I think it is the thing that we are the worst at, is okay. introducing the show. It's hard. <laughs>
1: Within the Wires is an immersive fiction podcast by Janina Matthewson and Night Vale co-creator Jeffrey Craner. Each season, we unfold a brand new story strictly via found audio from an alternate 20th century. Season 4, The Cradle, is a story about a mother and daughter as they attempt to lead a family-centric commune surviving on the fringes of society. Subscribe to Within the Wires at nightvalepresents.com or wherever you get your podcasts.